Welcome to Unfuck Your Head. I am your host, Kat Jordan. It's time to take action, get out of bed, smell the new day, and unfuck your head. All right, guys, I am here with Diana Fuller, who is going to introduce herself. The floor is yours. All right. Um, So hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Diana Fuller. I am a psychologist who right now works out uh, in the school systems or, well, technically right now for my home, but theoretically in a school system. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm also a coach and a podcaster who hosts the show Watered Grass, which explores all different strategies for managing stress. Uh, it highlights a lot of the local businesses in the Connecticut area that help support that. That's fantastic. Just to start with the podcast, because as a fellow podcaster, I'm always really interested to hear what inspired you. So what was it that really got you into um, doing podcasting? Sure. Um, Well, I guess there's two different sides to the story, right? There's like the chronological piece of what happened and then like the underlying reason that I kind of needed to go into podcasting. Yeah. So we'll start with the, the chronological story, right? I work in the school system, as I said, and I started working with the adults in my building because I noticed, you know, we're, we're helping these kids manage big feelings, but the adults in our school also have like a lot of big feelings to work through. Um, so I started with doing these morning kind of like little morning routine check-in types things, intros to meditation, talking about different strategies and found that I really enjoyed working with adults, which is something I never considered before. And while talking to a friend about that and saying, like, I really love talking about the different strategies, um, my own, you know, mental health journey has had me dip my fingers into almost everything that's out there. So I love talking about what works for different types of people. And she said, well, you know, if you really like having that message and sharing that, why not consider start starting a podcast? And I said, okay, like I could, I could get into that. So I looked it up and it was not beyond my technological abilities. So I was like, okay. I could do this. And I started thinking about what I like to talk about and some of my favorite conversations with, you know, both my friends and service providers I worked with is kind of like your origin story. So what attracted you to this? What inspired you? Because I feel like for most of us, there's, there's such a beautiful story where we start going into something because either we needed that, or we saw like there was a, there's a gap in the world in terms of like service that needs to be provided. And that inspiration helps people connect so that they feel comfortable going to that service provider and saying, let me set up session. Let me go to this therapist, this Reiki healer, whatever it is, because they see the human side of it. Right. And a little bit of that vulnerability. So it grew from there. Um, Something that it took me, this is the second year of the podcast, probably up until like 1.5 years into the podcast was realizing that this was kind of my way of working on bringing my own voice into the world and uh, growing in terms of being able to say like, Hey, I've got information to share. I've got ways to connect to people and bring healing out there, 
but it was kind of my safe space behind the microphone to kind of start that and grow that. Absolutely. I'm nodding my head and smiling because the way that you're describing it feels very similar to to mine, especially that last piece of like, as I am going through this and experience this, I'm behind the microphone. So, and, and as a therapist, like I'm the one in the chair listening to somebody else's story. And I think that a lot of therapists don't really talk about how we then understand our own journey and understand our own process and go through our own process after listening to our clients talk and after listening to other people share their stories because we don't often have an opportunity to speak. And I love this. I love that you're a therapist and that you're going to have this opportunity to share your story. Um, And we've agreed I'm going to be on your podcast, which I'm super excited about because I haven't been interviewed yet. So there's that level of like excitement and also of like, oh, I get vulnerability. But I think that's just phenomenal, not just for therapists, but obviously for a lot of other people out there who wouldn't otherwise be able to have access to this kind of information. Yeah, definitely. I think podcasting creates this really safe avenue for people to kind of explore what they're interested in, right? If you've thought about going to therapy, but you haven't yet, or you've always been interested in trying a meditation circle, but get really intimidated by the thought of walking into the room, it's that way to kind of dip your toe in the water and hear and learn about it. And you can get some of the emotion piece in podcasting too, because it's storytelling. Right. So that once you finally feel bold enough to take that step, you've already almost feel like you've had a little bit of the experience. Absolutely. Freaking awesome. What am I saying? Fucking awesome. <laughs> I was like, why am I curving that? <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> um, I love that. Okay. So Diana, you are taking a step here and sharing a part of your story. As we talked just a moment ago, this is entirely up to you and uh, none of this is prescribed. So wherever you'd like to start, I am all ears. So it's taken me, as I said, a long time to realize like kind of what all of this, the podcasting, the being a psychologist, the being a coach was pulling together. And it really was my own way of working through my own story, which I think if you talk to 99.999% of people who work in our field, that's basically it, right? We become the people that we wish we had when we were younger or at different stages of our lives. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a journey. Um, but now I'm at that stage where I can talk about it and share it and feel empowered instead of kind of hiding from that, that shadow side of myself, which, um, Beautiful. you know, so my story, uh, as a kid, Um, a lot of my personality, uh, disappeared over time. So I started as a very outspoken, um, loud in charge kind of kid. And it was something that, um, for a few years was like, that's pretty cute, right? That's, that's fun. She speaks her, her opinion. Um, but over time I I started to get some different messages, especially I think when I started entering the school system, Mm. hence why I work in a school system now, right? Right. Um, Especially as a a female, um, some of the messages and things that I remember the most from my early education experience were times that I was asked to quiet down. Gee, wonder why she's a podcaster, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like I remember having no problem as a kid speaking up and saying, you know, what was on my mind, how things were making me feel. And I had um, a mom who really encouraged, like, set your boundaries, no means no, you're in charge of your body, and things like that. 
And um, some of the bigger, you know, there's small moments and big moments that stick out. Like there's those small moments of speaking out my opinion in class and being told that it, it wasn't time for that. I needed to sit quietly, that that was unexpected or getting punished for it. Right. Um, and there were also some bigger moments that it took a few years to be able to process and talk about, um, such as experiences in a school system where um, I, there was, I've actually never shared the story on my podcast, uh, but having experiences where people um, violated my body in ways that I wasn't ready for at that age. I had no idea what, what was really happening, but knowing that it felt wrong. Yeah. Um, and having, it was actually another student, same age, had his own traumatic background history, um, which is kind of how it usually goes, right? It's like once yeah. the cork is out of the bottle when it comes to sexuality, especially for kids, it's hard to understand where proper boundaries are around that. And it kind of spreads, right? right until someone works with them. So um, it was, you know, being exposed to both touches that I, I wasn't comfortable with, messaging and kind of this persistent, almost harassment, but it's almost hard to say harassment because it was another child who really just needed somebody to support him and figure out what to do with those feelings and experiences. But then it was something that I suddenly was experiencing and holding space for. And I turned to some adults to help support me because that's what you're told, right? If someone does something to you that you're not comfortable with, go and talk to an adult. Um, And looking back now, I can look back and say, you know, okay, these adults didn't know what to do with this information. Um, But rather than getting the support of you did the right thing, we're going to make sure that you're taken care of. Let's make sure you feel safe. Right. Uh, I was asked to kind of intellectualize what happened. I was asked to look at what happened and say, well, gee, remember so-and-so experienced this as a kid. And they had a really tough upbringing. And, you know, they went through some, some trauma and some abuse and things like that. So it's not anything personal. Um, wow. And that kind of was a message that I internalized really early on was that things are going to happen to you. They might happen to your body. Um, but you, sometimes you have to be the bigger person and swallow it because they have some stuff that they're going through. Wow. that I mean, that is a pretty powerful and very adult message. Can mm-hmm. I ask about what age were you when you were given that message? Uh, eight years old, yeah. It was in third grade. Wow. I'm stunned, and yet at the same time, it's like, well, yes, a lot of people have had very similar experiences like this, and and I can see just in our conversations thus far, like how that has translated into your career. Yeah, it um, it definitely like it wasn't even clear until honestly, probably a year ago, where this story even came up. It was something that had been repressed for a long time because. You know, I intellectualized it and I compartmentalized it and um, definitely, you know, fully repressed. We don't need to revisit this ever again because we had it explained to us. Um, But I felt it surface in so many ways over my life. So having my body kind of explained to me like that, like, right, sometimes people are going to use your body and it's not going to feel good and it's not going to be something that makes you um, feel safe, but that, you know, look at the rationale behind it. And so um, my relationship with my body from that point on was always something that was distant. Glennon Doyle gave this great speech about what having an eating disorder is. You have your brain and if you're into it, like your spirituality on board, but you vote your body off the island. Absolutely. Like there's just, Um, they're not together in any stretch of the imagination. They're separate. Right. My body was, you know, the annoying (laughs) conjoined twin that I had to deal with every day. Right. And I was so critical of it. And it developed into um, 
an eating disorder. Like I can remember the first time actually like dieting and really starving myself around age 11 is when it started to surface, uh, which it does for a lot of people who end up going down that route because that's when your body starts changing. You start going through puberty and you start to have more awareness of what your body looks like compared to other people. So around age 11 was the first time that it started as anorexia because I would get into dieting and fad dieting because of the fact that it, it was all over media, especially when was this like 20 years ago was in that phase of like the thin is in, right? Everyone was super small and you were constantly surrounded by when you go to the supermarket, all the magazines were just covers of, you know, how to lose 20 pounds in 10 days. And as an 11 year old who didn't know how to interpret and love her body, I looked at those messages because also the messages from the adults that were around me were things happen to our bodies and we have no control over it. So I found control in the way that I could. Um, so I remember, you know, at age 11, subscribing to magazines and getting them sent to the house that could give me all of those now looking back like crazy diet tips of like where you live off of the lemon juice and maple syrup and whatever for like five days. Yeah. But that eventually led to, you know, it got to a point where adults had to address the way I was eating. And again, adults trying their best, but not having all of the resources, uh, it became more of a punishment. You have to eat in order to do X, Y, and Z kind of thing, right? That like, I'm going to assert the authority um, because this is scary. And I feel like that's the voice that I have to pull out to work with, with Diana right now, right. Um, which is, you know, and then when that was my one source of control, uh, when it came to my body, it developed into bulimia at that point um, around when I was 12 and was something that kind of faded in and out of my life up until about two years ago. As I'm listening, there's a lot of external messages and how you interpret that and how you interpret that at a young age like eight or a young age like five when you first enter, you know, the school system when you're exposed to other children and and other adults all the way up through to the messages that we get in our media and how harmful, I mean, I'd say detrimental, but harmful, you know, all of those words, but really just so harmful our psyche you know children are so vulnerable and if we don't have the right information being exposed to them and if we don't have adults with the quote right thing to say or right thing to do in these circumstances then we are left creating more and more illness in your story you come to about two years ago right with your eating disorder through your young adolescence to adult adolescent, adult adolescence, <laughs> your young adolescence. That's what it feels like in those early 20s. Right? It is. You're right. Thank you. What a great reframe. <laughs> um, your young adolescence, so prepubescent through young adulthood. What was that experience like for you on a, a daily basis? Yeah, um, it would depend on kind of what phase I was in. So when the bulimia was like in full force, um, which tend to surface around things like when I was stressed, I was a high achiever kind of kid. So that happens a lot. Achievement was how I felt valued, especially around deadlines, things like that. Or when I felt like my schedule was out of control, I was also one of those like overcommitted kids where my schedule was like we run from school to dance class to, you know, your basketball, and then you come home and you do the hours of homework. And so food was my control. So what that would look like, 
I mean, in my brain space, uh, it was just this constant, it was like number crunching all day. Things like, uh, I ate this, so I'll need to exercise for th- this many minutes um, in order to work that off. The shame aspect within my head of thinking like, oh shit, you actually, you know, you ate not one, but two of the cupcakes. So how many hours do we have left in the day? Can you walk enough steps or work out enough or whatever to do that? And this like constant battle in my mind, whenever there was food around me that I had put on that bad list, and this was something that persisted up through adulthood, was like being unable to focus on whatever else was going on in the room, right? Be it you're at the birthday party or you're hanging out with friends, this narration in my head of like, okay, so am I eating this too fast? Am I eating too much? Are other people noticing what, what's going on with my eating? Um, how many calories have I taken in? Do I have the ability to work them off? If not, can I purge without anybody noticing? Have people even noticed that I purge? Um, and on those darker moments, especially like being alone at night, it was the mindset of, you know, like, does anyone even care that this is going on? You know, like, right when your relationship early on to your body, you're being asked to distance it and just kind of accept what happens. You start to give yourself permission in other ways too, around food or like over-exercising myself. So it's really like the bulimia has not always looked exactly the same. And that changed, you know, as I got older and was a teenager, it came with the freedom of less supervision, more access to the foods that were bringing me comfort. So it would be things like when I did have those minutes of time between my crazy packed schedules, it was once I got my license, being able to drive to those fast food places, binge in the car and, you know, find my way to purge wherever it was. I was scary good at being able to get myself to like throw up on command. So I remember even like pulling over in the car on the side of the road and being able to take the empty McDonald's cup and be able to get everything right back up so that I didn't have to worry about my body taking in any of the calories of what just happened. But also getting really good at keeping it to myself because in a way that's kind of what I was asked to do, right? That early, yeah. The early messages with my body was keep your voice and keep you know your experiences to yourself because other people have stuff going on right. that you need to be mindful of. So I did that and it took up until probably once I entered college to actually even have a conversation with a therapist about what was going on. So it was almost a decade of fluctuating between binging and purging, starving myself, or thinking that I was doing something better for myself by going on really restrictive diets and saying, well, at least I'm putting food in my body. Um, But realizing that even that was really still an eating disorder because of how strict I was to the point of how many calories are in the vitamins that I'm taking in the morning and how do I work that off? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of different terminology now for eating disorders. You know, there's that blanket disordered eating where, Mm -hmm. you know, if anyone is engaging with their food consumption in a way that's disordered, in a way that's unhealthy, then that could be categorized as, you know, an eating disorder for a lot of, you know, mindset. How, as both someone who's experienced it yourself or is, you know, I'm sure it's one of those things that you you have to deal with your whole life. And also as a practitioner, how do you define it? Yeah, like, because there's all those, the technical terms that fall under the eating disorder umbrella. Right. Right. And so if I looked at it chronologically, it started as anorexia or the deprivation of food. Right. 
evolved into bulimia, which has to do with the eating and then the purging of it in whatever manner it took. Um, and then even, you know, as I started to enter adulthood, it was more of the uh, newer term of the orthorexia, right? Where you focus on um, the exercising so heavily in order to balance it out. Um, but for me, it was just, you know, looking at how my eating disorder overall, if I had to kind of generalize what it looked like and how I defied an eating disorder, um, it's that unhealthy relationship with food where you look at it not as a source of nourishment, but as um, both this like indulgence and also a punishment for yourself. Um, I had those mixed feelings where sometimes food was the only way that I knew how to comfort myself um, as I processed all of these thoughts and whatever else and all of the other things that become comorbid with that when I later, you know, officially got diagnosed with anxiety and depression. But my coping strategy was food. But at the same time, after I felt that comfort of immediately filling my body with food, it was the immediate like shame and almost like it was beyond fear or anxiety. It was fear of like, oh shit, I just put all this food and these calories in my body. I'm going to immediately feel that and my body is going to change in a way that I don't like and I need to get it out. Right. I'm like speechless because you, you say and describe it in such a way that I think is so on point. So I'm not going to add to any of that because I don't need to. <laughs> what? So then you said you had gotten into therapy in college. So mm-hmm. um, you and I both know that getting to therapy in of itself is quite a long process. You know, there's the initial, I don't need it. I can do this on my own to, okay, maybe I could benefit from talking to somebody to getting to a place where you start researching therapists, to a place where you then reach out to therapists. You know, that's a long process. And for some people, that in of itself can take years. So for you, what what was the initial, oh, gosh, okay, I, I, I really need to talk to somebody about this. And what got you to sitting down in front of somebody and actually talking about it? That's a great question. So something that, especially for people who are um, experiencing eating disorders and also questions of their worth of themselves and their body, something that happens is this over-reliance on certain relationships in order to kind of fill that need. So I was a serial dater for a long time, ever since I got into high school, just going from one boyfriend to the next because that's what made me feel valid and worthy, right? If somebody loved me and wanted to spend time with me or also showed appreciation for my body, I was there for it, right? Like this is, I would overlook so many other red flags because that was filling a need that I couldn't do for myself yet. So then in college, I had this breakup that really hit me hard. The person broke up with me after doing like six months of long distance while he studied abroad and stuff. And it kind of was the rock bottom that I needed to be able to push and finally say, I need help with this. Uh, my eating disorder flared up so hard that I remember going multiple times per day, sometimes without my friends even knowing, to like the uh, cafeteria at the school, binging, 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 um, and then purging afterwards. I was, you know, really getting into the partying scene in order to help manage those feelings. And waking up in the morning, totally disgusted with who I was waking up with, which, which, which was myself. So I finally got to that point of like, I need to do something about this. Um, now looking back, it's pretty clear. Like I was having some serious depression symptoms right. and I opened up to uh, my mom about it and was, listen, like, I don't feel like myself. 
I don't have motivation to do anything anymore. And she said, well, why don't you go along to the therapist that I went to? So it took out some of those middle steps of, you know, having to do the research and finding the right fit, which I wish would be like this, like beautiful story where I'm like, and then I found the therapist that worked for me, but it actually didn't. (laughs) No, of course not. I laugh. I'm sorry. I laugh because of course it didn't. Of course it didn't because your relationship, finding your relationship with a therapist is very much equivalent to finding your relationship with a a romantic relationship. There are ways in which you have to find somebody that doesn't fit with you to then find somebody who then does fit with you. And and that in of itself can be a process. Oh yeah. 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 So my, uh, my horror story visit was um in the first session I go in and I'm telling her about everything that's going on right oh, wait hold on um, I'm sorry wait is this <laughs> this is your first session my first session yep. okay she's oh gosh <laughs> yeah so because she knew my parents right um she kind of had this like assumed nature of like I already know you right um so she dove right into it right and is like tell me what's going on da 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 I left already with a uh, prescription for antidepressants and anxiety medication in the first session. And then at the end of it, once I, because she pressured me knowing that I had this history of disordered eating, are you purging currently? And I admitted, yes, she pressured me into bringing my mom into the session at the end of the first session to tell her that that was happening. Uh, So then I took my prescriptions, said, thank you very much. And uh, even though I was on the track going into the field of psychology was like, you know what? Maybe I don't need therapy. Maybe therapy is just not, not the fit. I mean, this woman was like disclosing stuff that my parents had not told me about their experiences with her that she just assumed that I knew it was a train wreck. And just to clarify too, like you're an adult at this point, you're over the age of 18. So this was like beyond unethical. Yeah. Oh yeah. Looking back as I being in the field now, and seeing all of those horrendous red flags, oh my gosh. <laughs> if I had been a little bit bolder and more aware and had developed my voice at that point, I would have had a field day with this one. But at the time, <laughs> was still such a people pleaser right. that I was like, yes, finally someone is going to tell me what to do to feel better. I will do anything that you say. Right. And that clearly did not work out. So I did. I think I did a second session out of guilt to go back to her, but then I ended up dropping, um, working with a therapist entirely until actually like, yeah, a year and a half ago. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that was your first yeah. experience. And then you continue to go through your education, which is in the yeah. field of psychology. And yes. uh, I mean, I say this and just understanding of like how much we really need to take accountability for that first initial meeting with a therapist and I say we as in the therapist needs to take accountability for that first meeting and how delicate you have to be regardless of what you know of the person because she totally turned you completely off and said well it's not for me but I can be that person for somebody else you know and that's both beautiful and sad at the same time and I say beautiful because of course that is what had to happen in order for you to get to this point in your life. Okay, so you, you went through school. What was your experience learning about psychology and counseling within the academic piece, right? Because your schooling is as a school psychologist. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Was that another disconnect as in like, this is my work. It is separate than my being. Or was there some 
interconnections that happened there through that that process? There were definitely some uh, interconnections as I went through. Um, as a overfunctioner, my thing was to throw myself entirely into school and learn everything that there was because that had been my safety net my whole life, right? If I know everything that's going to come up and what to expect and be prepared for everything, there's a much less of a chance that I'm going to get hurt. Um, so I threw myself into my schooling and was able to look at it more objectively without connecting too much to myself. But where I really had to face it was as I started working during graduate school. So I worked in a residential program during that time. Um, and it was for kids that were between the age of four and 18. It was like a step down program. So once they left hospitalization, they came to us for what was supposed to be like four to six weeks, but we had some kids that stayed there for months while they figured out where they were transitioning to next, whether it be re-entering the home, entering the foster care system, or just a higher level of care, and they needed a bed while the insurance um, companies worked out where that was going to be. And that's where I started hitting more of those moments that forced me to actually reflect on and dig into what had happened to myself. Like I remember working with my first kid that was uh, 14 years old coming in with an eating disorder and being, you know, given the, the charge. So what would happen is there's five staff on who are on the shift and we talk about the kid before we enter the shift and, you know, certain things you need to know going in, like so-and-so is a cutter. So, you know, do the sharps check, that kind of thing. So-and-so has an eating disorder. So remember they're not to go to the bathroom either, you know, 20 minutes before, 20 minutes after a meal and please write down what they're eating and things like that. And that girl was assigned to me because they would have certain staff that were like their check-in person, their go-to person. You hang out with them once a week and do something to give them a little bit more one-on-one. And it was the first time that I had ever, I remember, you know, meeting her and reading her story and getting like a cold sweat. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those where I was like, I'm going to be totally fine. I can work in this field and, you know, compartmentalize stuff that I have worked through because if I throw myself into work, I don't have to think about that stuff. But getting that story written out, because you get like the little background history yeah. and getting like the, is anybody else hot right now? Like, <laughs> is anybody else <laughs> sweating? No, it's just me. Okay. And uh, that was the first client that, I mean, you, in those settings, you hear a lot of horror stories, but it was yeah. the first one that kept me up at night because I also had to witness the dynamic with the parent and starting to see some of those reflections of like, oh, oh, this is really familiar. And I didn't know it then, but I know now like what an empath I am. So like feeling some of those things again with her without having the tools or strategies yet for how to um, ground myself and protect myself during that process was really challenging and really forced me to like look at what had happened to me as a kid. But, you know, I didn't really have coping strategies yet because I had (laughs) done my two sessions of therapy and moved on to just keep over-functioning instead. And uh, I remember that's when I first started having like some sleep issues at night or started fixating on food again as a distraction from the feelings and thoughts that I was bringing home from work. So school itself was okay. It was more of once I started to do stuff in the field and actually see other people working through their own eating disorders that I really kept running away from all of these mirrors that were presenting themselves that would ask me to look at that side of myself and explore that shadow side and sit with it. And that was where it became really challenging. Absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a certain level of 
exposure that you get in residential that you don't get in outpatient or even in in-home services. Residential, you're really getting someone who um, generally is chronic, right? Like they've had experiences mm-hmm. from, from childhood. And when you do get this assessment with their history and you can piece everything together, it's not just like this one section that you're looking at. Um, it's jarring. And it's jarring on the level of like how we understand mental health and how it develops and how it is created through our interactions with our family and interactions with society. But then also really shocking when we can see ourselves in it and we can see the the similarities. And I can only imagine that must have been incredibly painful for you. And then to have to interact with this child and provide therapy and treatment with them while also trying to not react, you know? I have two questions. Before you started talking about school, I was going to ask, because I was curious, I was like, well, you haven't really mentioned a whole lot about your family. Like, I'm really curious about your interactions with mom and dad. And then you mentioned it, and I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) Like, oh, shit. (laughs) That's where we're going. I'll let you decide. If you want to take this story back to mom and dad and how that dynamic played out, or if you want to take it to what happened between you and this client and by you and this client I mean like what happened to you while working with this client that brought more things to the surface so I'm gonna gonna let you decide which way that goes oh choose your own adventure okay (laughs) um (laughs) I think yeah I think that is that is the major piece of the story that I haven't talked much about on even my own show but the relationship with my my parents and food and everything and how it all interacts is also a really important part of the story. So like talking about, you know, the adults in my life who didn't always react in the way that I needed them to, two things that were happening to me, like those stories from when I was in elementary school and even, you know, the eating disorder stuff. Looking back, I'm finally at the point where I can say, you know, my parents didn't know what to do in that stage. They tried their best, but it's still okay that I am upset about the way that it was handled um, that's what I'm working through in therapy and I remember my first session with my therapist um, she was like putting out the little you know disclaimer like here are things we might talk about my new therapist like I love I just love her so much like I oh she's amazing um, but you know we're going to talk about some of this stuff and it's okay to hold space for both that mistakes were made that definitely seriously impacted you but that your parents can still love you and I remember my first knee-jerk reaction was always like Oh no, nope. My parents did everything that they could. They did the absolute best. Um, but it's taken that year, over a year of working with her to really finally pull that out and have those moments of the hurt that I, I, I would say that and say like, no, they did the best they could because facing what I needed not being met in my childhood was way too scary and way too hard at the beginning. Absolutely. And I think that that's, that's the case for many people. Many people. Mm-hmm. It is much easier for us to say, this is something that I need to do, that I need to work on, right? Like there's this ownership of, and again, this is a control, ownership of my story, my struggles. They did what they could. They did the best mm-hmm. that they could because I need to hold them in a place that is loving and supportive and I can't look at them in any negative way because that's going to be too harmful and hurtful for my heart because I need I need my parents to be that stable place. 
So I appreciate the struggle in you coming to a place where you're starting to really understand that they, that they could have done things differently, right? And that they themselves had stuff to work through. Um, so sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to- That's okay. You. <laughs> no, and it's, it's actually really good to get um, some, some validation around that aside from a therapist, um, <laughs> because it is something that I haven't really talked about much with like even some of my closest friends and um, even, you know, I have a brother and, you know, you dip your toe in the like, hey, did you have this same experience? And oh, yeah. even when you have two kids within the same family, they don't have the same exact experiences because all. we're different people right. and parents relate to their children in different ways because they have different personalities or experiences depending on gender or whatever. So yeah, it, it's challenging and it's it's one of those systemic things, right? Like I look back to both of my parents were raised by parents that tried the best they, they could, but my family, you know, on one side has a history of alcoholism. So there's some, um, some neglected things that happened there and some lessons around parent-child relationships that certainly had like a ripple effect into our upbringing. And right. especially when it comes to um, how you show love to kids. So I remember growing up, like some of the things I've started reflecting back on is like food really was it they weren't big physical affection or like even, you know, words of affirmation or any of that when it came to showing love, it was like the gift giving and often the gift was food. Um, and when I was a kid for me being like this empath full of energy as a kid, I was constantly seeking that out. Um, and I think that's a big piece of the puzzle when it comes to the eating disorder was I was a really physically affectionate kid, like constantly wanting to hug and tell you, I love you and having, um, parents that didn't know what to do with that was another message that I internalized early on about, you know, me and my body is like, my body is not the lovable part of me. Things they were comfortable with was praising like my achievement, right? I, if I did really well in school, on sports team, whatever that they knew how to handle because for them, they were like, okay, perfect. This is going to give her safety later in life that she has this skill under her belt. But when um, it was things like, me expressing a strong emotion or like expressing love for them. They really didn't know how to sit with that. Like I always laugh at the story. I remember when I was in my twenties visiting my parents and my dad just kind of being like, Hey, uh, you know, like, I know that we don't really do hugging and stuff, but if it's something you want, like we could try it. (laughs) (laughs) And being like, this is this how other, this is not how other families do this, do they? It was like, that's, that's okay, dad. Don't worry about it. Like, and that's in your but, 20s. <laughs> but it's another huge component of messages I was given about my body. And it's like love is given to you by like my parents were big on like, let's go out to eat. Let's go get a special trip for ice cream, whatever. And sometimes even that was the reward for the accomplishment. Right. So here's another complicated message about food and love that I've gotten put together. So it's something that I'll honestly say are some of the hardest sessions that I've had with my own therapist on is not just talking about the eating disorder and the beliefs about my body, because that's my story. And that's, that's something that I'm constantly narrating in my own head. It's bringing in those other players and the roles that they had during it, that were some of those like raw, shaky, scary sessions where I, you know, like, it's almost like, uh, I got to call out of work tomorrow. Like I can't recover from this right now. Right. And sometimes I did have to. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously, of course, you would have to take the time to really sit with it and process it. 
I'm, I'm, I don't know who your therapist is, but I will get her name after this. But um, I am beyond grateful for her because she was able to help you find something at the core of it, at the root of it. And that's why I wanted to ask about your parents because we have these stories that are ours that we own, but where do they come from? And they do, they come from those messages that we get from our, our adults in our lives as we grow up and from society. We can't fully, so I hate, I hate using definitive like terms, but it is harder to fully heal without exploring those deeper rooted core places. And I can see as I'm talking about this, you are so uncomfortable. You're like squirming in your chair right now. I know. I, I can see my little video and I was like, wow, my body language changed, huh? <laughs> yeah, you're like, this is not comfortable for you. Um, I'm sorry, not sorry. Um, so it sounds like you naturally still in the process of exploring that and and how you are navigating through this. We are getting puppy love on that end. So cute. My dog disappeared from where he went. He was here a second ago. Um, I'm sorry. I have to pause for a second. What kind of dog is he? Yeah. He's a boxer pit mix. This is Al. Yeah, they're like, they can sense it. Look, Al. You see the puppy? (laughs) (laughs) It's puppy break time. It's puppy break time. So Al actually has a really big part in the story, too, because uh, the last time that I ever purged was when he was a puppy, because I remember doing the usual like I went and got fast food because um so I live with my boyfriend and my dog and if my boyfriend was gone I would go and get fast food eat 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 and then purge if he wasn't home because that was like my private time and I remember trying to do that when we first got Alice puppy and like those little paws walking down the hallway towards me and like his concerned face as I was bent over the toilet bowl and I was like that's it I, I can't do this I needed someone else to do it for before I could do it for myself so Al's Al's my savior in many ways. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I love that. And how long have you had Al? Um, coming up on three years. Oh, yay! That yeah. is awesome. It's amazing. I mean, I feel like that's a whole other episode of, like, the value of our pets and how they can actually save us. You know, like, actually uh, save us. It's pretty powerful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are that perfect example of unconditional love. Yeah. Like, no matter what you look like or what you did like they are they are there for you and they're so in tune with our feelings and things like that too like they have no shame coming up and like like they're doing just coming up and being like I gotta show you right now that I love you it's so funny (laughs) because we were just talking about something that was really uncomfortable for you yeah and here he comes out of the corner I didn't even know he was hanging out he he wanted to say I got you mama that's so yeah he, he came out from his spot in the his usual spot lounging and protecting us from like the mailman um, <laughs> and then was like it's funny because he'll he'll be like that like oh I can sense that she's in that emotionally vulnerable state I think I need to go lick her face right now yeah and I, I love that because not everyone notices that that probably happens more frequently than we recognize you know if you start mm-hmm. to track your dog's behaviors you'll see that it really does mimic and parallel yours. I don't know if he's had any training, but Jake, he's my therapy dog, and he has no training. He just intuitively has this ability to to sense those things, and he's been able to do that from a, a young age, and it sounds like your little Al has that too. Yeah, I definitely want to get him trained because yeah. he, he does have that intuition piece, but we finally have hit the age where the energy is a little bit lower yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that we can settle and actually 
um, have him because I think that it would be so great both for the people that I work with, but also for me just to have him around all day. Yeah. Like that, that's my idea. Actually, uh, it's been something that I am so grateful for during this shutdown is being able to have so much time with him. Yeah, me too. Uh, totally. And I can see how much he appreciates it too, because he is calmer and happier and um, cuddles more. You know, he, you can just see it that they're, at least somebody's benefiting from this. <laughs> At least the dogs are loving it. The dogs, dogs. might have orchestrated it, honestly. <laughs> there has to be... Between the dogs and Zoom, they had a meeting several months ago. Yes. Can you put a little meme <laughs> out for the internet for that? Because we need a little bit of a <laughs> spreading of that, that kind of joy. Okay. I want to jump backwards a little bit. And I want to jump back to that moment when you were in, uh, working at the residential and you had this case that was very much parallel and, and mirroring your own upbringing um how did you navigate that what what was it that got you out of that um it was definitely really challenging I remember being you know really thrown into it because at that point I wasn't aside from some of my closest friends I wasn't openly talking about my history with my eating disorder so nobody at work was aware that that could have been a possible trigger for me so they were like oh look at this this female coming in there were more males than females on the staff. So it was like, Diana, you'd be a great fit. Right. And I remember meeting her and instantly like that empath, like open heart piece. Like I didn't recognize it then, but it was like this internal, like, Oh, I can just absorb all of the hurt and feel it. What, what you're going through. Yeah. And so being able to connect with her and hear her was really powerful but at the same time, I remember really struggling with what to do with absorbing that and then going home to myself at the end of the day, uh, especially during that phase. It was just me and one roommate living in the apartment. And that roommate often was like going home on weekends and stuff like that. So going home to darkness of my apartment to kind of settle with all of that. And that was hard. So I think, you know, I would go and help support her with her eating disorder to the point of, I remember if she asked to go to the bathroom after meals, having to sit on the other side of the door and be like, while you're in there, you have to, we're singing together or we're talking and I'm going to be here because that's, that's my job. And so it was healing in that way, but then going home and my own eating disorder was flaring up because I didn't know what to do with those feelings. Mm -hmm. So on the way home, going to two or three different fast food restaurants, loading up and binging and then purging to release the feelings in the only way that I knew how. So it was, um, it was powerful in that it made me look at it and confront it. You know, we're sitting there and, and she's talking about her visits with her family and what's working and what's not and witnessing some of the interactions. There were clinicians who did more of the sit down therapy. I was more on the milieu therapy of like you organize the activities for the day and do some of the group stuff. But then just seeing those interactions at the end of, you know, seeing some things mirrored, like her, her parents were not big, with the affection, you know, when they left at the end of the day, it was kind of like a, okay, do good work so you can get out of here, yeah. which is not, <laughs> that's not how it works. No. Like there's no A plus in residentials or like therapy or anything. There's no achieving, right. but there's a really high correlation and something that I was able to be like, oh, wow, look at me watching my own highlight reel right. of this is what it looks like. So it, it started to be the way that I could take baby steps towards reflecting on that but I still wasn't now I can look back and look at the interactions I saw with the parents and be like here's the connection it woke something up in me but I wasn't ready to address it yet yeah and that was years ago yeah that was about 10 years ago now yeah it was in my early 20s so like end of 
college, beginning of grad school. Okay. So yeah. And I can see even developmentally at that age, you know, you are still grappling with a whole lot of like processing of like, who am I? Where do I fit in the world? You know, how do I even experience like adulthood? Like there's a lot of layers going on there. So I could see where that wouldn't have necessarily been the best time for you to, to, to dig deep and really process that. So there's this gap then, you know, in, in the story so far. So having that be your first real awakening of, oh shit, this is, this is not, you know, something that I can necessarily continue to navigate on my own. And yet I still need to go to work every day. So how did you find a way from there to where you're at now? Well, so going from going into grad school, I had this other, uh, what I didn't see as a connected piece until, you know, a few years later where the relationship with my body, uh, decided to capture my attention. It was like, all right, you're not going to pay attention to what's going on with this eating disorder. Then, um, our bodies have a funny way of being like, oh, I can top that. Yep. So all of a sudden, <laughs> at the beginning of graduate school, I developed sleep apnea. Oh. Yeah. So I was, funny thing, probably the same weight that I am now. The doctor who had not asked about my history or anything told me, you know, it's probably weight related, but I was waking up um, like 13 times an hour in my sleep because I would stop breathing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and what that would lead to is I remember sitting in grad school and like, even like standing at the back of the classroom and not being able to fight off like a a sleeping spell. And what brought me to actually seeing a doctor finally was the fact that like it happened once while driving, which was terrifying Oh my god! Um, that I fell asleep, had to pull over and like take a 15 minute nap before I could even carry on to get back home. Um, so it, you know, looking back, it was this red flag where my body is like, we are not handling this because at the time to manage going through graduate school and all of this stuff that I never addressed, the stress of working in residential, which is like such a, a different mindset. Like you're constantly living in crisis while you're working there. Right. And, uh, also being in yet another relationship, which was not a healthy one for me, there was a lot of, uh, infidelity, which is like a major trigger for someone with an eating disorder. Cause it's that confirmation of like, see, I knew it. I knew I wasn't enough Right. where my body was like, all right, we got to do something to, to get her to slow down. And so I, uh, ended up getting this diagnosis and the doctor's recommendation was like, well, maybe if you start exercising more regularly and eating more healthfully, then maybe this, this won't happen anymore. You'll, you'll be able to get off of, I had to sleep with like a sleep apnea mask. Right. And I was like, Oh, you want me to lose weight? Do you like hold my beer? Like, let me show you how it's done. <laughs> Challenge, <laughs> Challenge accepted. accepted. <laughs> um, so, you know, in some ways it helped me to <laughs> get some better habits in place, right? Where I was more regularly like moving my body and exercising, but in a way it kind of put a fast forward on some of the eating disorder stuff where it wasn't mm-hmm. the outright binging and purging that happened occasionally, but not that often. But that's when the kind of orthorexia started, where it'd be like, you know, how much can I exercise to burn calories? How, what crazy diet fad can I hang on to that will get me to lose this weight as quickly as possible? Because of course, when you have a medical need pop up, you're like, how do I get rid of this as soon as I can? Right. Um, so that's when I started getting really into, you know, like replacing meals with like shakes and stuff like that and um, hitting the gym more than once per day. 
And the tricky thing is, uh, when you've always gotten praise for your whole life, it feels really good when people start going, wow, look at your body. You are looking so great right now. Or the doctor going, you've done so well that now you don't have to sleep with this mask on. And so when you're an achiever, the message in that is like, oh, you like that? Then you're going to love what happens next. So it really picked up speed um, towards the end of, of graduate school and continued. But I've always been a high functioner where you wouldn't have known it be from like things that people think you would see, right? You would think, oh, then your grades must have fallen apart or you must have fallen behind on things. And like the funny thing is, that was part of me keeping it together. Right. Like I would produce, 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 achieve, achieve, achieve. And then my release was whatever I was fixating on with the food at the time, no matter what form it took. Um, so there are so many people in my life that when I finally talked about it on, on my own podcast and was like, I had, you know, eating disorders for the last 20 years, people were like, what, <laughs> like, what do you mean? Um, because you get very sneaky and very good at it uh, over time, especially when you've been practicing for 20 years for how to eat and purge without a single soul knowing it's happening. I ended up meeting the boyfriend that I'm with now. We've been together for about six years at the very end of graduate school. And my first two years on my job, we did like a long distance relationship. And it was this very different experience where in the past I was always a fixer. Like I met someone who had you know, inner work to do, who was like broken in some way. And I was like, I'm going to step in and heal you. And of course, now looking back, you are looking for to do that because you needed someone to do it for you. But, you know, being in relationships with people who just weren't ready to be there for another person. And when I finally met my boyfriend, Henry, it was a completely different experience. Like he was someone who, um, if I had met him like 10 years ago, I always joke around. I was like, I would have thought you were boring. Like we wouldn't have gone on a second date. Because he like had his career set and he had done his own inner work and he had great relationships with his family and his friends, like nothing to fix. Like, what was I going to do during day to day? But I had finally gotten to a point where I was like, I need this. I can't do, I can't do the crisis all the time. Right. And, um, I had this dip where the eating disorder disappeared for a little while. Um, and then we moved in together in our third year, which meant me moving from, you know, I was living in Massachusetts still at the time, moved back to Connecticut with him and thought that it was like, you know, this is the the time I'm going to stop having an eating disorder because I finally found that person to give me what I need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was true for a couple of months. And then six months in, all of a sudden it starts to pick back up and I was getting frustrated with myself, like, what, why are you fixating on this still? You know, you finally have a career that you really love. You're with someone you really love. You have this amazing dog. You're in the best state financially you've ever been in. Why are you still obsessing over food and your body? And finally got to the point of going to therapy. Cause I remember sitting at this party with our friends. It was somebody's birthday party and I was in uh, a phase of more of the orthorexia. I had gotten heavily into the keto diet, which, you know, if you're, if you eat keto, that's fine, but there's a certain community of it that's more obsessive and there's, it's guilt driven and it's shame driven. Yeah. And that's can, where, yeah. Who can do the most, yeah. who can be the most keto. Yeah. That's um, where the, for- any diet or any kind of, you know, um, nutrition focused, you know, mm-hmm. uh, experience, if there's shame or guilt, that's not going to work. <laughs> That's going to be no. more harmful than good. Yeah. So I was uh, really into that and doing like 
you know, all of, they have like, you know, doing the intermittent fasting and how long could you fast for, which looking back, it's like, you know, this was just giving a new fancy title to my anorexia. Exactly. Um, and so yeah. I got to a point where we're sitting at this party and there were like the little fun size candy bars sitting on the table and people are chatting and they're like picking them up and eating them. And I remember realizing that I had missed out on like 20 minutes of conversation because in my head, all I'm doing is number crunching. All right, checking my Fitbit. I've done this many steps, which says that I've burned this many calories today. But if I eat this, it's going to kick me out of ketosis. And then it'll be five more days of fasting in order to get back into it. And um, then what if I end up gaining weight from it and I can't bounce back from it and realizing like all over a candy bar that is only this big yeah, and missing out on all of the connection and the memories and everything else that were going on in that circle, because all I could think about was that pull that that candy dish had on me. And at the same time, all of this resentment at the candy that was in it and like, like actual resentment towards a food item that just happened to exist and going like, that's it. That's enough. Like I can't, I can't keep giving so much brain space to this shit and missing out on the rest of my life because all I can think about is crunching calories and numbers. Um, so that's the point when I started researching. And so uh, I went on psychology today <laughs> as many do and looked up, you know, I started with just eating disorder and my area. And as I was reading, you know, all of the different parts of it, uh, what attracted me to my therapist was that she was, she focused and specialized on that, which I thought was important because of my previous experience with someone who was like, yeah, I do therapy. I, I'm sure I could handle an eating disorder, but she really like, that was her thing. Right. And she mentioned a lot in there about empowerment and communication. Um, and that she is also open to like more holistic methods as well. And I was like looking at my crystal shelf and I was like, boom, this is my girl. Right. Um, and so I went in and thought, you know, I go in, I'm like, okay, you know, let's talk about the story. I was totally comfortable talking about like, you know, all of the, the binging, the purging, the diets I've done and whatever, because that was the part I was ready to fix. Um, and I give her the whole like, all right, so how long do you think we'll be working together? And she's like, well, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. She's like, but to give you an idea, most of my clients I work with for at least a year. And I remember my heart sticking into my stomach and being like, no, 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 you see, I'm an achiever, so I can do it faster. Yeah. Like, is right. there a fast track? Right. What, it, how many stickers do you give out for people who accomplish that sooner? Like I can, I'm going to kick this thing's ass like out, out of the gate now that we're, we're doing the work. Right. Um, but now seeing like, so I've been working with her for a little over a year and a half now. And like, I just, uh, have gotten past that. Like the eating disorder is the tip of the iceberg. Right. I mean, if anything, like all of these stories, it's the tip of the iceberg. The relationship with food is a relationship with so much more in my life. So like, yeah, we stopped the um, tracking of calories and all of that stuff within the first couple of months. But then once that happened, she's like, okay, you know, now it's time to go to that next layer and realizing what else it connects to and that trickle down effect. Um, right. So it's been, you know, a year and a half and it's ups and downs or like, the process has me feeling really empowered and then we open something brand new and I feel raw and um, scared and um, kind of like I have to I have to protect myself because everything is out there my guts are falling out mm -hmm. but then you work through it again and you get to that empowerment stage so I don't know where I would be without her but she has been one of the most life-changing things that's happened to me in the past five years 
I'm like just so fucking happy for you. I am just so fucking happy for you. Because as you are experiencing, and I hope other people understand this too, it's like you can educate yourself. You can learn all you want, right? You can read as many books as you can. That's not going to be enough. And what it is is that you met someone who you have a connection with, who can hold space with you and really guide you gently and lovingly, but also firmly to places where you wouldn't otherwise be able to go. And, you know, just to the other piece of what you mentioned about this party that you were at was you also recognize in that space that you were missing the thing that you truly do need, which was that connection with other people and to be present with other people here al is giving you love and is known we're having this conversation he's so good he's like she's telling the story i gotta come over i gotta come over you better get some treats later (laughs) um so many and, and that and you know same with al like it was that connection that you had with him and the stability and connection that you had with henry like all of these things had to happen for you to start to feel that it's safe enough to be able to go to these really scary places and I hope that and maybe you can share a little bit more before we wrap up is I hope that through your process you're starting to discover that having a connection with yourself can also be safe right that you within yourself can still hold space and hold support and love through the process that it's not just these external connections but also an internal one for sure and i think that's that's the big piece is like reaching out and finding this therapist that works a partner that is is truly there for me for a while like you were saying i tried to fix it on my own and i think that's part of the why i went into the field i did is like i've tried to reach out to other people to support me and it hasn't worked in the past right in my childhood it just didn't happen it fell flat So for a long time, it was like, well, then I'm going to meet my own needs. And (laughs) part of me probably was like, you know, I'm going to go into this field because then I'll learn how to fix myself and I'll be fine. But you can't, you can't see everything from the inside, having somebody else to hold the space and reflect back what's truly going on and help take the filters off in a gentle way was so important that, you know, and I think it's one of the main taboos uh, or um, myths, I should say, about those of us who are in the psychology field is like, we don't have all of our shit together. We are not perfect humans whose psychology is perfectly balanced. Uh, We're working through our own stuff. And, you know, especially when you are in it, you can't see all of the factors that are surrounding it. Right. So those connections helped me to see, you know, myself with more love and have more self-compassion. My self-esteem and everything else was so tied to accomplishing and what my body looked like. Um, that without that, I was, I would flounder if I didn't have someone to support me and walk me through and see all those other beautiful parts of myself and my personality. I think if, you know, if in therapy had gone in the way that I thought it would be, which is like, let's take care of the eating disorder and you're on your way. I think afterwards, if I probably would have turned to some other vice or something else that was, that was bad for me to fill that void Absolutely. because I didn't know where, what else there was to love. Right. And I appreciate you recognizing that too, because the more I hope that we delve with Unfuck Your Head into these stories that 
we can really see that at the core of everything is that if we are feeling inadequate or if we are feeling bad about ourselves or we're not enough, um, we are naturally as humans going to seek out ways to feel better and ways to feel like we're in control. And that mechanism goes across the board for every human being. Um, so whether you have an anxiety disorder, depression, whether you are struggling with, you know, um, uh, substance use disorders or an eating disorder, like all of this stems back to us trying and finding ways to cope and, and not healing. Um, and part of me is, I go back and forth between this, like we all have to experience that pain in order to get to this place. And then there's another part of me of like, we have this generation of younger kids who are experiencing these things. And as educators and as practitioners, what can we do preventatively so that they don't have to experience what we're experiencing? And is that even feasible? You know, like if you really look at it, if this is a human thing that we are all experiencing, is it is it even feasible? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> now that that is a loaded question. That is a loaded question. Often, like, whew. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like working as a... Uh, as a psychologist with young kids. So I work in an elementary school. So I have like between five and 10 year olds and looking at it and seeing like the numbers that are rising, right. In terms of kids that are um, experiencing symptoms of some kind of mental health disorder at a younger age. And it's like this feeling like the water is rising. What is happening that's, that's leading to that. But I think even just the fact that we're, we're recognizing it and there's starting to become some shifts where people are, and I think honestly right now is giving us a huge reminder of, you know, that Maslow hierarchy of like, we have to meet some yes. other needs before we look at what we're achieving. Like we have to meet kids where they are right. um, and give them that, that support. So I think the more that especially us adults are starting to do that inner work of like what could have been different, the more that we're able to take that message and carry it over. Like as I've been working, like I've almost wanted to like sing it from the rooftops of, this is how to, how to, you know, love and treat your daughter so that they can love their bodies and who they are. Um, or like texting my brother of like, I know that our family doesn't like to talk about feelings, but you know, like you have a daughter now. So if you want to talk about what my experience is like, so that, you know, it can be different for her. Like I'm an open book. Yeah. And we, <laughs> I think it's, it's starting to have these kind of vulnerable conversations that are the way that we start to make that change. Absolutely. I, I, I'm getting goosebumps because I am so excited for what you are going to be doing in the future and what you are doing for our generations. And I can see the passion in you and I fucking love it. Um, I wish we had, uh, well, I can say, I wish we had more time, but really I'm going to have to have you on again. I mean, we're going to have to do more collaboration. I think, you know, the, the way that you speak and the way that you express yourself your ability to be vulnerable. Thanks for Al for that extra support. Um, and your perception of understanding that like, yes, being in, in this very vulnerable, seeing this very vulnerable age group, we can make change and we can support them in a way so that they don't have to experience the kind of struggles that we experience is beyond fucking exciting for me. Like, I kind of just want to, like, can we just, like, take on the world and fix everybody? 
Because we can do I'm it. I'm down. I'm like, Let's totally do it. Down. What are you like, doing later today? We understand. <laughs> we just need to find a really tall rooftop with a lot of <laughs> microphones. Just screw it. Yeah, um, it'll be fine. I mean, hey, I mean, there's reason that we have podcasts, Exactly. Right? Yes. And thank goodness for that. Okay. Um, any parting thoughts that you want to share to our listeners? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, if you're in that early stage of starting to think about reaching out for help and whether or not, you know, it's valid, you know, valid or warranted, um, to first know that we've all, we've all gone through that phase as we've, we've gotten there. Like, yeah. and the, the pictures, especially, you know, like social media and things like that, that you see of people, um, who have gone through and they're like, yeah, I made this life changing decision. Like know that it, it takes months, years, and a lot of emotional work in, in the process. Um, so, you know, you deserve it. You deserve to do, to do that work for yourself, to do that for yourself. Um, and that there are plenty of people who are there to support you, even if you haven't had that experience before. There, there are lots of us here in this field too, who would just want to listen and help. Yeah. Thank you so much, Diana. Really, like this has just been a wonderful conversation, a wonderful way to connect. I'm so grateful that we were able to do this. Um, I'm sad that we didn't get to do it in person, um, but I'm glad that we were able to make it work. Thank you. And thank you for holding space for my story today. Absolutely. Um, my heart goes out to you. Keep being a badass woman that you are. And uh, we'll be in touch. Definitely. Thank you for listening. Join me on the next episode of Unfuck Your Head as we continue to build a community where understanding human health is at the forefront of real change. Don't forget to hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram at Unfuck Your Head Podcast. You can also check out upcoming podcasts, my blog, and ways to contribute to our mission by visiting our website at unfuckyourhead.org. Fuck your head